and uh, spend time with us, which I appreciate here on this Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. A pleasure and a privilege to be the first to say good afternoon to you as we're headlong into this day where you are, I hope, working toward making each and every day count because, well, each day is a gift. And today is action-packed. There is a lot going on. In fact, starting right at noon, that was the extended deadline for the strike for the casinos. I received word here from the uh, president of the casino uh, union, Nia Winston, president of Unite Here Local 24, the Union of Hospitality Workers in Detroit. And they say, as of uh, five minutes ago, Thousands of union casino workers are on strike. They say after months of full table negotiations and meetings by uh, departments failed to result in a deal with the city's three casinos, the workers represented by the Detroit Casino Council are seeking contract improvements after, they say, years of pandemic hardship, but casino management remains unwilling to deliver a fair contract for workers. On the other side... The casinos, Motor City, Hollywood, used to be Greektown. A letter from the MGM Grand Detroit president and COO Midwest Group, Matt Buckley, that was apparently forwarded to all of the casino employees today. And uh, he says, in part, the union has made the decision to call a strike beginning today at noon if an agreement is not reached. Therefore, obviously, we can safely say that an agreement apparently was not reached. The letter from Matt Buckley goes on to say, we intend to continue to operate our business during any potential strike and will remain open this week and beyond. We will continue to offer employees work, and to the extent employees represented by the union choose to participate in the strike, we will take whatever lawful action is necessary to fill shifts and continue providing our customers with entertainment and service. So, For anyone who thought the casinos were going to shut down with a strike, he is saying, at least at this moment, that's not going to be the case. He goes on to say, although employees represented by the union have the right both to strike and to picket, no one can prevent you from coming to work, threaten you with violence, or interfere with you when you arrive and depart from the property. If you are the target of any such conduct, please report it to security or human resources immediately. Regarding the status of our negotiations, we've made six proposals to the union, and our current offer includes the single largest pay increase in the history of MGM Grand Detroit. It is a significant proposal. Well, we've heard that before in some other strikes that are underway. And Matt Buckley, president and COO Midwest Group on behalf of MGM Grand Detroit, concludes with, we will continue to negotiate with the union to reach an agreement that is good for all parties, The reality is that no one wins in a strike. A strike hurts everyone, from employees and businesses to the community and the economy. And we're working hard to prevent that outcome. Thank you for all you do to make MGM Grand Detroit a success. This was a letter sent uh, clearly to the employees and to today, and noon was the extended strike deadline, and noon has come and gone. Republican Jim Jordan telling CNN he will go to the House floor today for a speaker vote at noon. That was now eight minutes ago, though it remains questionable whether he has enough votes locked down to secure the gavel. So we shall see. You know what the most uh, concerning headline I have seen, Mr. Rieger, David? No. Tell me what is your most concerning headline. It comes to us by way of USA Today. And the headline is, 2,000 U.S. troops told to be ready to deploy. We have been told repeatedly there will not be American boots on the ground, and this would indicate otherwise. And this opens up Pandora's box of all kinds of other problems. And coming up in just a moment, Marie Osborne's going to give us the very latest on the president who will be in Israel tomorrow, which means he's leaving today. President Joe Biden traveling to Israel amid this war that is already underway, but is going to get much worse. And I said yesterday, and I still stand by this, I do not see anything really good coming of this. 
maybe he's being told by his people, you have to do this to make it look like you tried everything you could to keep Israel from doing everything Israel feels they need to do to survive. Because Israel will always do what they feel they need to do to survive, regardless of how anyone else looks at it, thinks about it. They are living there. So, uh, it's going to be interesting. I, I suspect the president is going to plead with Netanyahu to get all of the hostages out. I do not believe that can happen. And in the end, uh, from the beginning, I thought, well, those hostages are in very, very bad shape, a very bad position, because Israel will only wait so long to eradicate Hamas. And anyone who dies from the time that Hamas did the cowardly terrorist act that they did, um, anyone's death from that point on was at the hands of Hamas, and that'll be this way as well. And they, sadly, those hostages will just be a part of collateral damage. It is unfortunate, but I can't see it going any other way. And I don't think the president is going to go there and tell Israel what they should or should not do. He can tell them what he hopes they'll do, but they will do what they believe is in the best interest of the survival of Israel. I think we've learned that already. What do you say, Mr. Rieger, being a Jewish man? Um, I kind of agree with what you're saying. It's... uh... I don't think it's going, I don't think uh, there's much that can be done uh, as far as, uh, I know he'll try about the hostages, but um, I, I kind of agree with you. It's just, it's uh, we're not saying this is the right thing. We're saying this is what we see happening through observation and experience. I am surprised that Israel has waited even this long. But it's only, I mean, what other countries send out flyers, drop them by airplanes, get the word out? You better leave this area because we are going to destroy this area. And I think it's going to be a, a pretty horrific battle. I think that those tunnels that Hamas has used uh, are going to come in very handy for them unless the Israelis know where they are. And they can't possibly know where all of them are. And many of them are built under schools and churches and hospitals so that they won't be harmed when Israel does their their bombing that they have been doing. But eventually, it, it well, just eventually, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a worse mess. And I'm not sure what the president is going to do to change that. And then again, I say, the worst headline I see buried in others, and there are plenty of them, 2,000 U.S. troops told to be ready to deploy. We will talk more about the president's trip with Marie Osborne coming up here in just a moment. There are a number of things going on. You know, I don't know. You know I don't know, but you're a sports guy, Rieger. Ex-NFL star Antonio Brown. Yeah. Was he a big deal? He was he was a big deal at one point. Made a lot of money. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, he is uh, being arrested once again for unpaid child support payments. Not surprising. And listen to this. This didn't mark the first time he was taken into custody for being a deadbeat dad. He was arrested in April and again in August after he missed payments of fifteen thousand and thirty thousand to ex-girlfriend Wiltrice Jackson. Now, this is the part that's just unbelievable. You know, he's only 25 years old. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, he also went to CMU. He did? Yeah. Well, they can't be very proud of this next line. <clears throat> Brown, who's 25 years old, has fathered at least six children with three different women. None of this surprises me about Antonio Brown. Man. Talk about having the ability and the opportunity for a great life and blowing it. Man, oh, man. We see okay. this story over and over again in, yeah, the, we do. in all sports. We see it in all sports because we take kids 
who have very little money, and we give them bushel baskets of money, and apparently not the kind of education, training, I don't know, counseling to help them understand how to deal with that. He's on his way to being broke, of course, and worse. But that's the way it goes. Lots going on today, a lot going on, and we're going to have it for you here on Focus. I'm Paul W. Smith. It is an honor to be with you. If we can't be with you from noon to 2, please go to thegreatvoice.com and download our podcast. Have it come to you automatically. You'll never miss a show as we continue on WJR. And we really appreciate you being with us noon to 2, Monday through Friday, and on our podcast, thegreatvoice.com. In what many are calling a dramatic display of support for Israel, President Biden will be leaving today and arriving in Israel tomorrow. The trip is an effort to contain the Israel-Hamas conflict from becoming all-out war in the Middle East. And our WJR senior news analyst, Marie Osborne, has more on the president's visit. Good afternoon, Marie. Hi, Paul. So this visit comes 10 days after Hamas' surprise attack on Israel, in which more than 1,000 Israelis were killed, including children, and at least 30 Americans in, included in that group. Dozens were taken hostage. This prompted airstrikes on Gaza in retaliation, with more than 2,000 people dead there. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is currently in Tel Aviv. He's been meeting with leaders there in the region, as well as Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, when the president arrives, he is scheduled to meet with Netanyahu as well as other Israeli officials. Blinken says the president is there to make it clear that Israel has the right and duty to defend its people from Hamas attacks. He will also make it clear that any other state trying to take advantage of the crisis had better think twice. That is not a so thinly veiled message to Iran. Iran's foreign minister wrote on X that the expanded Israeli-Hamas war was unavoidable and expanding the possibility of the scope of the war on other fronts cannot be avoided. While the White House spokesman for national security, John Kirby, says the hostages taken during the Hamas attack are also top of mind. They will be discussed. I know, Paul, you mentioned that, whether that was going to happen. And when it was asked if it was safe for the president to travel to the area, he said they wouldn't be making the trip if the proper security measures were not in place. Iran is allies with Hamas, but the Biden administration has so far um, found no evidence that either Iran knew about the attack on Israel or Hamas helped carry it out. That is the word from the White House on that. I just, I, it doesn't matter what I think, but because I'm not a newscaster, I'm an opinion caster. I, my opinion is this is a wasted trip uh, and a dangerous one for any president, let alone this president. Uh, and I don't think at this point in history, anybody needs a dramatic display of support for Israel to know how much the United States supports Israel in this issue and has forever. This is not a surprise to people. It's, in fact, what's angered many of our enemies that are Israel's enemies and caused a heck of a lot of problems over the years, the relationship that we have. So nobody needed to be reminded that we are standing with Israel and that we have 30-plus Americans dead and untold numbers of American hostages. So I just, I I don't know, I just don't have a good feeling for this trip. I wonder um, if what they're trying to make a punctuation point here is that they want to let Iran know, or anyone else in that region, that um, any kind of interference, I mean, like we said, Blinken made that very clear. Anybody else thinking they could take advantage of the situation they just better not because that that will not be tolerated by the US and i just don't know if there's a better way to show that other than sending the commander in chief well we i don't won't know. know until it happens yeah, really we won't we won't and uh and i'm not sh- i'm not sure uh-huh. what the or else is yeah what is the or else if you do this well we're going to really get mad and uh well, you better not think about doing this 
Well, we have those uh, carriers in the area now that, you know, went immediately upon this attack to that region. Um, As you mentioned earlier about those 2,000 U.S. troops that are now, uh, these these were troops that are usually on a 96-hour prepare-to-deploy status. They are now on the 24-hour deploy uh, status, be ready to deploy status. So uh, that I'm with you on that one. I, I definitely think that's a another thing we all need to be aware of. Very much so, and uh, I'm I'm here to tell you, no matter what the relationship was, is, or has been with the United States and Israel, specifically with President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who, by the way, is fighting for his survival, which he will not, in this case. We heard as much from people in Israel that we've talked to on the air, most recently Galit, who was our intern years ago. Um, Now's not the time to talk about that and how this government failed miserably, the people of Israel. I hear from more people who were waiting for the cavalry to arrive, and they never did. And, in fact, that music festival was very close to a base, and and they never came. It was just, it's on. Thinkable, But anyway, Benjamin Netanyahu, if it's the last thing he does, needs to do everything he can do to eliminate Hamas. And the fact of the matter is, if the president is also going to be pressing for ways to ease humanitarian suffering in Gaza, the fact of the matter is he ain't seen nothing yet. Mm-hmm. And that's scary. Uh, I know, you know, one of the things that um, I've talked, my husband and I have talked about this situation. And one of the things is that, you know, Israel was in a lot of turmoil before this happened internally. Right. Uh, there were issues with their Supreme Court and uh, and with Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, there were there were demonstrations, rallies in the street. And I wonder, were these did the Israelis take their eyes off the ball here and because of all that infighting and all the issues that were happening internally, is that why they missed this uh, this attack that was coming? Um, I think it's something, I think it's really kind of a, a tale that we really need to be wary of, even in our own country here, as we continue to struggle in, within Congress of trying to establish leadership there. Well, you're absolutely right, as you often are, Marie. Uh, you're right spot on on that. And all of that will be dealt with in the days to come, but right now, not in the throes of this. And, you know, from going to Israel a few times and learning that the Israeli people were not all together, were not all in agreement on many things, and they had big fights among themselves. But when Israel is under attack, they completely drop all of that and come together realizing that oftentimes it is a fight for their very existence and that becomes the most important issue not the one not the little issues but didn't seem little when they were arguing and fighting but there's no question that israel right now is showing a united front even though they're shell-shocked with what happened because nothing like this has happened in 50 60 years it actually nothing like this has ever happened We'll stay on top of it, and with the help of Marie Osborne, our WJR Senior News Analyst. Thanks, Marie. Thank you. A great man coming up next, Jim Fitterling, the chair and CEO of Dow. Catching up with Jim Fitterling, up next in Focus with Paul W. on WJR. Dow, of course, an American multinational corporation headquartered in Midland. The company is among the three largest chemical producers in the world with a presence in about 160 countries. It employs about 37,800 people worldwide. And the guy in charge is, trust me when I tell you, the right guy. He's been doing this since, I think, August of 2018. It's Jim Fitterling, chair and CEO of Dow. Jim, it is a pleasure and a privilege to welcome you back to the Paul W. Smith Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Paul W., and it's great to hear your voice. Glad to be with you. Great to hear your voice and to think of all the things you have brought to Dow since you've been running the show, not the least of which last we talked was about the Great Lakes Bay Invitational. And uh, I thank you for your support, your ongoing support of the Paul W. Smith Golf Classic to benefit children's charities. But here you are with your own uh 
Great Lakes Bay Invitational and the the effect, the impact on the Great Lakes Bay region. Uh, And you're already looking ahead, of course, to 2024. That's been fabulous, and it continues to get better. The Great Lakes Bay Invitational has been a fantastic partnership. I mean, the LPGA really shares our values. They bring fantastic sport into the community, and it's a huge economic impact here. We, We estimate it brings in about $15 million a year to the region. We have over 270 community partners that work with us to pull this off, 1,100 volunteers all the way from Detroit area, all over the state of Michigan to come up to, to make this happen. And um, we've been fortunate enough to be able to give to charity and increase the purse every year. So we're looking forward to next year. We're moving dates next year to June the 24th through the 30th in Midland Country Club, and um, that'll be the first year we've ever finished on a Sunday. So we'll go Thursday through Sunday next year, and we're looking forward to that. Well, we're looking forward to it as well. WJR always makes it up there to broadcast uh, and uh, bring all the action and excitement and good works of your uh, Great Lakes Bay region, Great Lakes Bay Invitational. And I I give you kudos for that because it is not easy uh, having a golf tournament, especially one as big and as good as the one that Dow has and you have, Jim Fitterling. But in our conversation, we veered off into other topics, which I found fascinating and therefore asked for you to come on the show, and I'm glad you've made the time uh, today. In fact, we're giving you two segments. We don't do that very often, but you are worthy of that. As we started talking about how the energy transition that we're all living, and we talk about it mostly with our cars, electric vehicles, but it is well beyond that, and it needs to be sustainable, reliable, and affordable. And Dow is headlong into the energy transition and energy expansion. Uh, Some of, you've said, uh, some of the greatest opportunities in front of us. Well, energy is a big part of what we do. I mean, we're a, a large energy user, and we participate in the energy markets in different ways. And, you know, natural gas liquids are our raw material from making many of the products that we make. But we also generate a lot of power and steam. We generate 10 gigawatts of energy from fuel to create that power and steam. So, you know, we have a front row seat on what's going on. And we're considered to be one of the hard-to-abate sectors in chemicals. Uh, And in order for us to make the transition to a low-carbon or zero-carbon emissions economy, which is our goal by 2050, we need to be part of the solution set. And right now, the discussion is heavily focused on alternative energy like wind and solar, which have grown and and have a fantastic place in that transition. But at the same time, we're talking about increasing the amount of electricity that people use substantially. So think about generative AI and NVIDIA chips and the data centers that are being created today. It's estimated today that data centers use about 3% of the electricity in the country. In very short order, that's going to be 10%. Mm. Electric cars are going to use more electricity. What we've been doing with our electricity generation has been retiring baseload capacity, like coal, um, but also not expanding baseload like gas and nuclear and all alternatives are intermittent and without that baseload power we're going to run into some electricity reliability problems well we know that there is a tremendous demand for more energy clean energy and therefore uh, if you've led the way jim fitterling chair and ceo of dow uh, continued investment and partnerships with the government industry and utilities uh, certainly are essential to enabling this transition, and you are well aware of that, and that's why you're doing what you're doing. We have um, we have several big projects. First off, we during COVID, we took the team and sat down, and we went through all of our locations around the world, and we said, if we want to take our scope one and two CO2 emissions to zero by 2050, what do we have to do? And we looked at all of our sites and, and really our top 25 sites make up the bulk of that. And we looked at what had to change. And um, one of the big projects which we just announced um, uh, earlier this year was that we're going to put 
a small modular nuclear plant at our Seadrift, Texas location. I, I got to tell you something. Uh, that is a huge story that I want to come back to so you have all the time in the world that you need to finish this story as we're spending time with Jim Finnerling, chair and CEO of Dow. You heard right. Nuclear energy on their location. You'll want to hear the rest of the story coming up next. In my conversation a few weeks ago now uh, with uh, Jim Fitterling, the chair and CEO of Dow, a great uh, Fortune 500 company in our own backyard in Midland, if you will, he mentioned what they were doing specifically at Dow with nuclear energy and the, the promising technology of advanced small modular reactors, something I know nothing about and we're all going to learn about right now with Jim. This is pretty fascinating. Yeah, we've been working, uh, Paul W., with a company called X-Energy on some technology that came out of the Department of Energy looking at small modular nuclear reactors with a different sort of fuel called a HALU fuel, H-A-L-E-U. It's a spherical fuel. It's um, it's meant to be fail-safe. Uh, the reaction can't run away, so you don't have any safety concerns. And it's a very small footprint technology, so we're going to put 320 megawatts, four 80-megawatt units at our site in Seadrift, Texas. That will deliver all the electricity for the site. But on top of that, because of this technology, it will deliver more uh, high-pressure steam. And, and in an industrial setting like ours, we need more high-pressure steam even than we need electricity. Um, so we get both of those things, um, and because it's a small modular reactor, the footprint is a few acres of land. But if you think about, you know, what it would take for 320 megawatts of solar, for example, you would be taking up thousands of acres of farmland to be able to generate that kind of electricity, and I wouldn't get the high-pressure steam off of that. So we think it's a, a great fit for industry, especially industries like ours, and we're part of the Department of Energy's Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program and hope to have this up and running um, before 2030, uh, really starting construction in 2026 and then um, getting the units up running you know, consecutively by the time 2030 gets here, have all four of them up and running. As a material science company, um does this then, when you do what is in a sense uh, uh, an experiment at the Seadrift Texas manufacturing site, does this then turn into one of the products that you will offer to other manufacturers, other companies around the country, around the world? What it does is I think it proves out the use of this technology in an industrial setting, and others are going to be watching to see how they can leverage that technology into their setting. So X-Energy will be in a position to then go into the industrial sector and replicate this on, on a larger scale. And one of the promises of small modular reactors is you can build the nuclear core in a facility and, and ship it on a truck bed or on a rail bed to the site and, and put it together. So it's less expensive than a traditional nuclear plant, which requires an awful lot of permitting inspections, et cetera. Um, I think it's going to be big. Now, when we make products, what will allow us to do is to be able to say these products have zero scope one and two carbon emissions, which is becoming more important for our customers' customers. If you think about consumers everywhere, they're concerned about climate. They want their products to have a smaller footprint. We see that in the purchase of electric vehicles. We see that in the purchase of alternative energy. Uh, the same is true on household goods and things people buy every day. You're starting to see labels popping up with the carbon footprint on the labels. And it's important for us to decarbonize our manufacturing because we serve all of these durable goods and consumer goods markets. Well, and this seems to be a, a, a certainly a viable source of low GHG, the greenhouse gases, um, and, uh, and it's sustainable. And when you look around the world and you talk with your various customers, it's clear that uh, not only do they want you to continue your journey toward a lower emissions world, but actually accelerate your efforts. And the, everybody's got the decarbonization bug, if you will. 
And Dow is uh, fully on board and investing a lot of money every year in that. We we are. we Our capital budget is approximately $3 billion a year. We will fully spend a billion dollars a year on our decarbonize and grow strategy. Uh, we spend about a billion to maintain our asset, existing assets. And then we spend about a billion on new product growth, you know, new products for the market. So it's a substantial part um, between now and 2050. And we have the experience to do it. I mean, in, in, since 2005, we've reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 15% and grown our volumes by almost 30%. So we we think we can do it. We're, we obviously need to do it in a cost-effective way, and that's one of the reasons we think SMRs are, are part of the answer. But also, so is clean burning natural gas, and, and so is hydrogen from natural gas, uh, and we're working on a project in Canada for that as well. Did we, uh, we were just uh, with our WJR Travel Show listeners, we were in France, and I, I mentioned to them that France is way ahead of the United States in using nuclear energy. At one point, it was 75% of their electricity was produced by nuclear. Did they teach us anything for what you're talking about? Well, the United States has um, a very good baseload of, of nuclear power. It's been stable over the years, but since the 1980s, it really hasn't grown at any tremendous rate. So I think we know what to do. I think this is going to open up a new generation of safe, affordable nuclear power. And I think it will be embraced by all, and thanks to you, as the chair and CEO of Dow, Mr. Jim Fitterling. I look forward to our next conversation, and I look forward to sitting back here and watching you in Midland do all of the great things that you continue to do in your position that will, in the end, help all of us, help the entire world be a better place. Always always a pleasure to talk to you, and I look forward to seeing you in person soon. We'll look forward to that. Jim Fitterling, chair and CEO of Dow, and he's been doing a tremendous job there since 2018 as we continue in focus and a reminder that we've got some stevie nicks tickets to give away coming up with paul w and we're so glad that we are together here on the great voice of the great lakes news talk 760 wjr and uh, nice to be with you always monday through friday from noon to two but if you can't join us then if that's inconvenient for you please join us uh, on thegreatvoice.com. These podcasts are fabulous, quick and easy, and we can stay in touch, and I do hope we will stay in touch uh, that way. Thegreatvoice.com podcast. You press a couple of buttons, and it'll send itself to you uh, on a regular basis. And there was a touching moment on uh, television yesterday, the end of the 6 o'clock news on Channel 4. Bernie Smilovitz was back at work for the first time since his beloved wife, uh, Dr. Donna Rockwell, who appeared on this show and my other shows for years. You know by now she passed away unexpectedly. Bernie gave a very tasteful and touching tribute to the woman, as Bernie put it, that everyone loved. And that is the truth. And Bernie showed some strength that I, I must tell you was incredible, reflecting the great marriage and life that they shared together with their family. So we're just saying that, Bernie, we're, we're with you on this and, and thinking about you and Donna and the family as well as they have gotten through this terrible tragedy as best they could, better than many. Uh, lots going on. I did mention uh, going into the break that we will have the tickets to see Stevie Nicks in concert November 7th at Little Caesars Arena. We'll do that between now and uh, 2 o'clock. Meanwhile, uh, catching up on some birthdays, Pete Beauregard Jr. had his birthday Sunday from Colony Marine. It got by me, but I wanted to mention it. And then Jessica and Scott Burns, little girl Cece, Cece Burns had her birthday yesterday, and I think they're still uh, 
enjoying the glow of going to, uh, I think, their first trip ever to Walt Disney World, which had got to be a lot of fun. Hey, we mentioned that a lot of our folks who've traveled with us a number of times on our dream vacations, and we got a couple of good ones coming up, one in February of 24, the Caribbean, and then one in August of 24, really a spectacular trip on seaborne cruise lines, and we're going to do uh, Montreal, Quebec City, all that, that whole area. It's a beautiful... If you go to wjrtravelclub.com or you check in with Cruise and Tour, you'll get all the information you need. But uh, th- these are some pretty good trips, I can tell you. But anyway, we just got back from this trip from uh, Paris and the Bordeaux region, and a number of our uh, listeners went to the Louvre, which is never easy... It apparently was packed and hot. And uh, listen to this little Mona Lisa story because some of you saw the Mona Lisa for the first time in person. They found that the Mona Lisa has a rare compound that suggests Leonardo da Vinci was ahead of his time. A rare compound discovered within the Mona Lisa suggesting Leonardo may be the first to use a technique previously only thought to be in later paintings. This uh, uh, a new study indicates. Oh, and by the way, I mentioned Disney a moment ago. I forgot to mention yesterday. I think it was yesterday. I'm sure they're celebrating it all year, but I believe Disney turned 100 yesterday. Mr. Rieger, do you know if that's a fact? Did I get that right? Was it yesterday or is it today? I think it was uh, yesterday. I think it was yesterday. I have to check I on that. So. I yeah. do think so. So anyway, happy birthday to the company that at one point employed us. They at one point owned the ABC chain of radio stations, which includes, of course, included at that time, WJR. Now we're owned by Cumulus Media. Have you noticed the gas prices have gone down a bit? I have no. I have noticed that a little bit. I, I saw a story about that um, uh, in the USA Today that even California... Uh, their gas seems to be getting a little bit cheaper with everything that's going on in the Middle East. Yeah, they well, they did spike when the Hamas uh, militants and uh, terrorists uh, did their uh, cowardly attack. Uh, but now the average uh, for a gallon of unleaded gas was $3.60 yesterday, representing a three-cent drop from Friday's price. California, for whatever reason, leads the nation in the high prices. Well, for everything, I guess. Well, yeah. But their gas is $5.62 per gallon. It that is. would drive me crazy. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. My brother I, lives I, 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 my brother lives out in California. It's uh yeah. It's a totally different world out there. Why does he live there? Does he tell you he loves it or yeah, something? He works for Google and uh he uh yeah, he likes it. Now this is the as you like to put it the successful brother. That's that right. right. Yes, he's a successful. He's the he's the successful Rieger. Yeah, he's the, <laughs> just, the he's the, of, the, of the two of the three of us that the two of us went into media. He went into tech. Well, well, okay, I can't argue then <laughs> with you on that. I was going to defend you, but you're right. Uh, let's face it. I did the same thing. I went into media, but so be it. I've loved doing it, but I understand. He has a real job with a real an actual pension, probably real insurance, the whole deal. Anyway, uh, NBC, NBC has signed on to host the third Republican presidential primary debate. I wonder, was it hard to get somebody to say they'd carry it after Fox did the first two? I, I, I don't know. It's going to be November 8th in uh, Miami-Dade County, from what I... Will Trump be there for the third one? Probably not. He's busy in jail or in, in not in jail, in court. They're holding him in court as if it's jail because they're so afraid of him. So I doubt he'll be there, but you never know. Well, um, they, well, let's see. The first time he he went out with Tucker Carlson opposite the debate. Yeah. The second debate he was with the, the striking workers uh, here. So where's he going to be for the third one that he can uh, go up against it? Well, he owned casinos for a while and maybe maybe he'll be he'll come back uh to detroit to be with the casino workers that went on strike an hour and 12 minutes ago possibly i doubt it but i'm just saying um here's in our our efforts at relentless positive radio violent crime across the u.s decreased last year 
dropping to about the same level as before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. But property crimes rose substantially. This is the data from the FBI's annual crime report that was released yesterday. Now, the report comes with an asterisk. Some law enforcement agencies failed to provide data. What's that all about? But a change in collection methods in compiling 2022 numbers helped. And the FBI said the new data represents 83.3% of all agencies, covering 93.5% of the population. By contrast, last year's numbers were from only 62.7% of agencies, representing 64.8% of Americans. Why is there always an asterisk on these things? Violent crime is either up or down, or I guess you could say stayed the same. But now they've changed the whole way they do it, and they've changed the numbers of reporters, and I I, I don't know. I don't get it. In a moment, uh, Marie is going to be uh, talking about hospitals and nurses battling over a state plan to set mandatory nurse staffing levels. And that's the front page of today's fine Detroit News. Nurses, hospitals at odds on required staffing plan. How about delivery robots easing workloads in the hospitals? Oh, boy. We've got that and much more coming up, including tickets to see Stevie Nicks in concert November 7th at Little Caesars Arena. All right here in Focus with Paul W. Smith. And it looks as if Republican Representative Jim Jordan is not going to make it on the first vote. He can't get enough votes at this point. Uh, in fact, eight Republicans that they weren't expecting, uh, four of them I think they were, but eight voted no. And it's important because it's time-sensitive because uh, without a speaker, lawmakers are unable to pass legislation uh, in the midst of the international crisis and the looming government shutdown. They, they can't do anything. So people who are preventing this from happening will have a hand in any of those calamities that come our way. Uh, Meanwhile, we've got some issues out there that uh, are going to affect us one way or another, whether it's for ourselves or a family member, what's happening in our hospitals, the staffing crisis in particular, the shortage of nurses in Michigan is the heart of a battle that's brewing in Lansing, where lawmakers may consider whether to pass legislation that would impose mandatory staffing ratios In hospitals, I already told you, it's on the front page of the Detroit News, nurses and hospitals at odds on required staffing plans. WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne honing in with a closer look at both sides of the issue. Marie? And, Paul, if you've been in a hospital in the last year, you have seen this problem firsthand. Nurses are in short supply. These bills are known as the State Patient Care Act. And here's basically the breakdown on this controversy. Minimum staffing ratios mean that there would be requirements to assign a certain number of patients per nurse. Healthcare workers say this is a great idea which would improve patient care. Hospital administrators say this would be a financial disaster and, in fact, reduce patient care access. According to the Detroit News, the proposed mandatory staffing ratios are part of this package of bills that are supposed to get a hearing later this month. The fight has also pitted nursing unions against hospitals. Democrats, who are labor-friendly overall, hold a slim margin in the state legislature right now. Under this proposed plan, mandatory overtime would be banned. All hospitals would have to make public their nurse-to-patient ratio. And here's an idea of what that would look like. In the ICU, one nurse would have one patient. In labor and delivery, it would be one nurse to three patients. If this passes, the Michigan Health Association says Michigan hospitals would have to hire about 13,000 new hospitals, and they say that would be near impossible due to the shortage of nurses. One possible look into the future of nursing, Paul, is a program from Trinity Health, which has started a virtual nursing system at some of its hospitals. The nurses talk to family members via video, helping them to fill out paperwork and other routine tasks. The virtual nurse so would work with a direct care nurse on site. And 
Also, we should say the bills have received bipartisan support. They're backed by the Michigan Nursing Association, but opposed by the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Look, for a very long time, we've had to deal with nurse burnout. We're starting to see that in doctors as well. For a very long time, we've heard from nurses that they're overworked, that they have way too many beds assigned to them to be able to really do the job they've always wanted to do as nurses. This is a calling, not just a job. And they're getting burned out, and they're concerned about patient safety. Uh, They get tired. They're worn out. They're concerned that they could potentially hurt a person that they've been entrusted to care for. And then we have the other side that is saying, well, but we can't afford to have the proper number of nurses. So it's a it's a big, big problem waiting to blow up, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And you can see both sides of this argument. I mean, it'd be great to hire 13,000 nurses, but they're just not here in Michigan. So what? Are, how are you going to fill that uh, gap or that void? But uh, I will tell you, I've been in the hospital with loved ones last year a couple of times, and it was really... Um, scary some of the things that i saw and i mean i was there helping as if i was a nurse and it was you know like taking somebody to the hospital putting their clothing on you know it it just it really is a serious problem it be it's become normal yes for us to say boy if a loved one's in the hospital you better have an advocate there for them Mm -hmm. that means a family member is assigned to be in the hospital room with that patient as much as possible. When the heck was that acceptable? When did that have to become a part of a hospital stay where you pay an exorbitant amount of money for just the time in the hospital, let alone all the services? Uh, it's, it's, It's out of control. There's no question. And here's the other thing. You know, you said, how do they fill the gap? Well, somebody came up with the idea of traveling nurses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So imagine what it's like to be a nurse paying X uh, amount an hour for your job, and then somebody comes in as a traveling nurse and makes X times three or X times oh, five yes. what oh, you yes. make. Mm-hmm. That's not easy to swallow. Nope. I know a couple people who do that, and they've made a very, very good living. They're young, they're single, they can do it, and they love it. But what you just described is very true. You've got one person. And look at the auto industry right now. They're fighting against that very thing, that you Correct. have one worker making one thing and another one doing the same job making another uh, amount of money every hour. So <laughs> they're fighting it in the auto industry. It's, yeah, it's happening in the healthcare industry. What well, happened well. when, uh, when I, um, don't quote me on the facts because these aren't the facts. This is the memory of when I used to have to fly or used to get to fly. Kim's training. I get. I used to get to fly to New York every week. I'd work Monday through Friday at WABC, Saturday and Sunday at the beloved WJR for my hometown. I used to fly, and it was easy. It was a quick trip. But then, I think it was Northwest, could have been American way back then, bought another airline. And the baggage people working side by side found out that there was a vast difference in what the hourly wage was for the people who worked for either Northwest or the airline capital or whoever it was, Republic, whoever they bought. And then they started protesting and taking luggage and pulling the luggage tags off and throwing them in the middle of the, in the, middle of the <laughs> luggage area. Now, that didn't affect me because I, I, was, I, I always did carry-on. You wore the same clothes for three or four days. While who knew? I was town. in two different states. <laughs> um, who knew? Uh, so, But the point is, uh, people don't like working side by side, doing the exact same job and not making the same amount of money. And you're right. We're seeing it right now in the auto industry. And then there's another story under the opinion section of today's uh, Detroit News where a Patrick Crane, MD, DNP, RN, boy, he's got a lot of letters, from the Michigan Council of Nurse Practitioners under the headline, Nurse practitioners deserve full practice authority. So now where do you draw the line? I mean, it takes a lot to become a nurse or a registered nurse. I presume not as much to become a nurse practitioner. And then what does that do to the people who went the extra mile 
to become the registered nurse or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot going on here. This industry is really going through monumental changes. And they can and very well may affect each and every one of us and not in a good way. Exactly. All right, Marie, always a good job, as always. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne, as we continue with Paul WJR. Well, we are, I, I got excited when I saw that uh, Mr. Rieger had uh, had booked somebody that we haven't talked to in a long while. He's, he's heard all over the place now, but we started with him many, many years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. He, began, he became our go-to guy. For the pandemic, he's the Director of Infectious Disease Research at Beaumont Corwell Health. It's Dr. Matthew Sims, and we we have not connected with him right now. We're hoping everything's fine and that we will be able to connect with him because flu season is beginning. We're being urged to get vaccinated, uh, though there is what they admit is vaccination fatigue out there. The state's goal is to get Four million people vaccinated against the flu. Last year, only three million got their shot. And I and I don't know if the year before that it was higher or lower. Uh, I know that vaccinations have come under fire because of the considerable concern about the COVID vaccines. You know, it's uh, and, and COVID isn't listed here, but I, of course, was going to ask Dr. Sims about this because there's a lot of people who say, you know, go ahead and get your flu and COVID shots simultaneously. But I'm reading here uh, in USA Today, an updated COVID-19 vaccine has been available since last month, and more than 7 million Americans have gotten boosted since then. But many people are still on the fence about whether and when to get a shot. Experts say when and whether to get a COVID-19 booster should depend on your health status, risk tolerance, timing of last infection, and other personal factors. Now listen to this. The new booster, this is the new booster, is targeted to the XBB.1.5 variant. Oh, did we ever become experts in this terminology? But that variant is no longer in circulations. It's no longer in circulation, that variant. But studies suggest, suggest the vaccine will still prevent severe disease from other Omicron variants that are more common now, including EG.5, FL.1.5.1, and HV.1, and XBB.1.16.6. Are you kidding me? There's a little bit of confusion going on here, and it almost seems purposeful. Anyway, they ask you to take a look at yourself before heading for uh, an appointment and rolling up your sleeve for covid Are you at a higher risk for severe infection? One question, and typically this includes people over 65, though older people can wait if they're healthy, and younger people with ailments such as diabetes, which eventually will be everyone, unless we turn this thing around. That's another story for another show. But younger people with ailments such as diabetes should move more quickly to get vaccinated. Pregnancy, health-compromised, immunocompromised, all these things go into whether you should or shouldn't do this right now. If you have a major life event coming up, if there's something coming up you absolutely can't miss, like, say, a wedding or anything three to four months from now, they say, get the shot sooner rather than later. Have you recently gotten the virus? This, again, COVID. Is COVID-19 likely to get bad again? This is unanswerable. If somebody says they have the answer, they, they are not being fully straightforward and honest with you unless they have a far better crystal ball than everyone else. Again, the question about getting the flu and COVID shots simultaneously, they say that can be done. And then there are, I think, like three vaccines out there, and they say it doesn't matter which one you get. I've always leaned toward the Pfizer, now BioNTech or whatever, although I haven't gotten one in a while. I honestly have lost count. But I haven't gotten one in quite some time. And, uh, you know, I don't know where I'm standing on, on getting the next one, especially when I now read that this booster they call the new booster is is targeted to a variant that no longer is in circulation. Huh? Doesn't that mean you would want to wait till the next one? I don't really know. 
I, 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 this is something you have to talk to your doctor about. It's something we will eventually, if we, if we can catch up with him, and it isn't going to be right now, but we will ask Dr. Matthew Sims when we get this uh, all figured out. If I'm young and healthy, do I need another booster? The short answer is probably not, as long as you don't mind being sick for a week or two. People who are young and healthy have already been infected or vaccinated more than once are very unlikely to get extremely sick or die from COVID-19. The risk of contracting long COVID, in which symptoms linger for months or longer after an initial infection, has also been shown to be much smaller for people who are vaccinated, particularly those who have had three shots. Well, I, I had my first two, and then I had the booster, which was the third. Is that what they're talking about? Or are they talking about three boosters? I can't keep track. And uh, we will uh, reschedule Dr. Matthew Sims, Director of Infectious Disease Research, Beaumont, Corwell Health, and we'll look forward to that conversation. Speaking of looking forward to conversations, Mickey Maynard, Michelin Mickey Maynard, journalist extraordinaire, is here to talk a little bit about uh, what I thought was an excellent presentation by Bill Ford yesterday. Although the front page of the Detroit News says, Fain rejects Bill Ford plea to end strike. UAW leader unmoved by Blue Oval's execs warning that America's auto future is at stake. That conversation up next here with Paul W. Smith in focus on WJR. Sorry, Mr. Announcer. I uh, I was so uh, in a hurry to admit I made a mistake here because uh, it's so rare. But anyway, um, I, I, was <laughs> I was talking about... Nurse practitioners, and I didn't know what they were, and it says nurse practitioners deserve full practice authority. We were talking about the nurses and the hospitals at odds on required staffing plan. Uh, Marie, God bless her, went and dug into this a little uh, uh, deeper than we were able to and said, uh, I had to look this up, but nurse practitioners have a lot more training than registered nurses. So you learn something every day. I did not know that. I had not heard that. I, I didn't know anything about it, but we wanted to make sure that was clear, that nurse practitioners have a lot more training than RNs. So there you are. So they're trying to really get them to be more like doctors and doing all the same duties doctors do. So there's plenty of room for conversation on that. Great conversation always happens when Micheline Mickey Maynard joins us here on the Paul W. Smith Focus Show Mickey, good afternoon. It's always a pleasure. Hi, Paul W. And first of all, let me say that I often see nurse practitioners at Michigan Medicine at the University of Michigan, so I can attest that they're very skilled professionals. Not that our nurses are, but I think the the nurse practitioners do get an extra layer of training. This may seem uh, trite, but it's important for me to know. Can you tell the difference by just looking at someone to know if they are an MD, a nurse practitioner, or a registered nurse? Somebody else will be better qualified than me to say that, but I think they may get to wear white coats, the short white coats, not the long white coats. Ah. But, yeah, ask, ask an expert. That's, okay. Uh, right. That's what I can tell you. You're an that. expert in many areas, but not this okay. one. That's okay. Front page of the Detroit News, Fain rejects Bill Ford plea to end strike. I watched Bill Ford live do his about 10-minute speech, and I thought it was excellent, and I let him know, not that he cares how, what I think, but I thought it was excellent, uh, perfectly timed and legitimate. And and what did you think? Well, remember that book that was called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? Yes. Um, that you can be talking about the same subject and hear it in different ways. And that's what I was thinking yesterday when I was thinking, okay, Bill Ford is saying, you know, perfectly reasonable things, and certainly believes what he's saying. And I was thinking about Sean Fain and the way Sean Fain might be hearing it. And I thought, oh, there's a couple things here that are not going to sit well with him. And first of all, Bill talked a lot about partnerships, which is something that the union and the companies have talked about for 40 years, I think. But if you remember that there were two UAW presidents who went to prison and 17 people who were indicted, and one of the reasons they were indicted was that it was had to do with the partnership between Stellantis and the UAW, that there was a temptation for fraud there. So the word partnership to Bill Ford 
might be different than the way UAW officials are hearing partnership now. And the other thing to remember for Sean Fain is that he is the first ever directly elected president of the UAW. And as such, and he says this all the time, the people with authority in the union are the union members, not the executive board. And so when Bill Ford and the other CEOs talk to him, they have to remember he's in a different position than anybody else in his job has ever been, and he's got to handle things probably differently than they did. With a caveat that that it did not, he did not have an overwhelming uh, majority of votes. He won by very few votes, as I understand it. Right. He um, he got in in a very very slim margin. I think it was fewer than six hundred votes. So he knows that you know the next can He's I think he's only fifty four. So the next candidate could come along and say, you know, Sean didn't deliver what he promised, and I'm going to deliver, you know, more for you. And so, you know, he's he's set expectations pretty high, and I think he's going to have to meet them. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, it's just hard to <laughs> – um, I don't know about you. Mickey, you worked hard. I've known you for years. You've always worked hard. <laughs> you wanted to advance. You wanted to do as well as you could do. It never was a bad word to say, boy, I'd really like to become wealthy. Um but when you're talking to a guy like Sean Fain, UAW president, while he's wearing a T-shirt that says "Eat the Rich," Eat the it's, rich. A, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little disconcerting. But anyway, yeah, and I, I mean, he's talked a lot about the billionaires, and you know, Bill Ford is his family. He, he's the only, the only. I mean, yeah, that's the only. I don't know what billionaires he's talking about, but <laughs> the Ford family would be one of them. But they, they've been working on that for a couple hundred years, or a hundred and whatever it is now. Please a hundred years. At yeah. least a hundred. Yeah, so Mickey, right oh. now I think we've got we've got kind of a communications disconnect. And yes, I we do. I got to run. We'll communicate with you again. Mickey Maynard here on WJR, thegreatvoice.com for the podcast. Stand by for news. WJR Afternoon, the one and only Chris Renwick. Go on out, make it a great rest of the day on your way to making each and every day count each day as a gift. Regards, Paul W. Smith.